Happy birthday, everybody. There it is, the happy birthday back. Uh, Jeremy wore pants today, but as you can see, I'm holding out. I'm wearing shorts. It may be a little bit rainy, but we are going to hang on because I saw like 79 degrees in the forecast for next week, so we're going to aim at that. Uh, I'm glad that you're here this morning. I'm excited to start a new series just as an opportunity really for alignment as a church family. That's what we're aiming for. We're aiming for alignment around core values, um, present future, this idea of this uh, series. And, and those, those leaves on the, as you're looking at the screen, on the left side of the tree under present there, they're not falling off. They're just not fully uh, grown in yet. That tree is, is young. And I see us in some ways as that. At six years old, we're in, in that elementary kind of phase, that adolescent phase, and we're still uh, continuing to build maturity and to grow into maturity as a church family. We want to continue to aim at those things. And so present future is all about assessing where we are, the things that the Lord has done in us and to us and through us, and also where by His grace we are going so we're going to take the next nine weeks, actually, or so to cover some of our values and as well as uh, just some distinguishing marks of how we organize as a church. But ultimately, present future is all about defining the target for us as a church family, what we're aiming for as a church. Now, you can see our, our values are up on this banner over here. I'm going to preach through the very first one this morning. Jesus' gospel is for all of life. And we, uh, we see these values as coming right out of the life of Jesus himself. These are not some things that we have just kind of made up and that we're arbitrarily aiming at, but rather like Jesus' life was specifically marked, if you just think about the record of his story in the Gospels alongside these values, you see that he was giving himself presently to these very things. So we also want to talk about some structures like eldership and deacons and membership or, or partnership, what it looks like for us to engage in long-term effective ministry here. So when you think about alignment, there, there are a couple of, go ahead and throw a, the slide up on the screen uh, around alignment. Go one more to the, the, the illustration. You can see on the left side, like that is a group of people that are all kind of engaged in some community, but they're all going in a host of different directions. And when we start to align, each individual is connected, but moving in a similar direction. And so that's what we're asking for as a church family, that we would kind of sort out what it is that we're aiming for, and then we would begin to all pull in the same direction. We want you, I want you to be able to consider what your role is in that, what your role is, how you fit in that picture with everyone pulling in the same direction rather than in opposing directions. What it does is it opens us up to strength and it opens us up to resilience too. Strength in the sense that we're using our effort in a, a similar direction. We're pulling together. We're using our strength to pull in a similar way. But also resilience because as conflict arises among us or on the outside of us, we are together and aligned and unified about what it is um, that we are all about. And ultimately, my hope is, and I think that you would agree, is that we want to be at all of life, we want to be a long-term disciple-making presence in our region. 
That's what we want to be about, a long-term disciple-making presence in our region. And so we'll, we'll talk about what that looks like more practically in the weeks to come. But uh, for our birthday today, it's Jesus. We are going to focus on the gospel is for all of life. That's my main point this morning. The gospel is for all of life. It's the sum it's the center point, actually, of all of creation. And so this means something. If you're familiar with the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection, and now he rules and reigns over all things, if you're familiar with his story, if you're familiar with his work in the, world, in the world, this gospel being for all of life means that if we will allow it to, the good news of Jesus can touch and transform every part of who we are. Yeah, it starts within our hearts, and then it begins to animate us on from that point. But it also, it, it does truly ripple out. When, when the good news of Jesus captivates our hearts, it begins to move out, bringing wholeness to our relationships, bringing wholeness to our work, bringing wholeness to our physical lives, to our stewardship of money and our stewardship of energy and time. And there is no part of our life that the gospel is unwilling to transform and renew. Or to say it differently, there is no part of our life that Jesus is unwilling to transform and to renew. There's no part. There's parts of our lives, sure, that we have tucked away and kind of hidden from his view in some ways. But there is no part that he is not willing to engage with and help us along with. Churches, we functionally gather around a number of things. Many uh, churches gather to help people find their way through life and to develop life skills that will guide them through various challenges in life. You might describe this as pragmatism. Other churches will gather around a set of rules or laws that they believe they must maintain in order to maintain God's acceptance. We wholesale reject that. It's a kind of legalism or moralism. Still other churches will gather around a personality, you know, like a preacher or a leader who will help them to understand the Bible and, and, and have a sense of better engagement with God. You might call that celebrityism. I don't know exactly what you would call that. Still yet, others gather around the Bible seeking to gain understanding and knowledge about God and His work in the world. This might be kind of biblicism. The list goes on. Three of those are good in their proper place. One of them, like I said, we do wholesale reject, this idea of legalism or moralism where we can work to earn or to maintain God's favor. So truly, the, the people of God have a number of choices to make when it comes to what is most important about the church and about the, the place of the church in our lives. And as the choices increase, so does the difficulty in understanding what is most important. You guys know this. Like, you, we give you a ton. If there's 20 t-shirts out there, it's harder to decide which color you want. If there's four t-shirts out there, you can probably make your pick, right? This morning, I want it to be a potent reminder for us about what Jesus says is central. So we've been in the Sermon on the Mount. We've been in the Gospel of Matthew. Now we're in a series around our vision and our values and our structures as a church family called Present Future, and it is all about Jesus. And so because I'm speaking all about Jesus this morning, and it is familiar to many of you, I want to ask that you do not, please do not uh, tune out. I want to say some things uh, that I hope will come home to you in some fresh ways. 
Um, in archery, uh, there's a principle for accuracy that goes like this. Aim small, miss small. Have you heard this before? The idea is, nobody has heard this before, apparently. The idea, this is okay, Aaron Drake is the one who has heard this before. So the, the idea of aiming small and missing small is that if you define your target and it, uh, very, very precisely, you will have a better rate of accuracy than if you just look at a large target and aim anywhere for it. So for instance, if you have a 24-inch target and you're just aiming anywhere on that target, the likelihood that your arrows are going to land all over that target is very good as well as off of the target. But if on that target you define a very small area, the likelihood for accuracy and for grouping those arrows into small groupings drastically improves. Aim small, miss small. Jesus himself has given us our target. He has, in his own words, given us the bullseye of our life as followers of him. And so um, it may be surprising, but the bullseye isn't Bible study. The bullseye is not church participation. The bullseye is not serving the poor. The bullseye is not prayer. The bullseye is not giving to those in need The bullseye is developing a relationship with Jesus himself, and everything else will flow from that. The bullseye is a relationship of dependence and reliance upon Jesus himself. He did give us particulars, but we we do not go and chase the things without him. In John chapter 5, um, verses 37 through 40, it's, it's this moment that the Apostle, Paul is, uh, the Apostle John is recording um, where Jesus is, he's in some confrontation with the Pharisees fairly early on. He's beginning as he's teaching to equate himself as being one with the Father. And the Pharisees are all kinds of, uh, they're the religious rulers in the land. Uh, they're, they're the ones who have the power. They control and operate the temple. Uh, they are uh, they're at the heart of the life of Israel. And they do not like what Jesus is saying, that he is equating himself as the son of God, the son of the Father, one with the Father. They believe that it's blasphemy and they want him off the map completely. And he begins to confront them and he begins to speak directly at them. And he says this, the father who sent me has himself bore witness about me. His voice you've never heard. Right out of the gates with clear eyes, he's confronting them and pushing them back onto their heels. His form you've never seen and you do not have his word abiding in you for you don't believe the one that he has sent. You search the scriptures He says to the Pharisees, so these are experts in the law. They're experts in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. You search these scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life, he says to the Pharisees. These experts in Hebrew Bible knowledge missed the Messiah. Their whole Bible tells the story of Here's a principle for us. If they missed it, you and I can too. We can get all excited about 
exterior things, secondary things, tertiary things, things way off on the margins of Christianity. When's the the world going to end? Like all of these questions that are important questions, but not central, central, central questions. In Luke chapter 24, it's the story where uh, it's the very last chapter of Luke's gospel. And Luke is a medical doctor. He also wrote the book of Acts. And he is telling the story of this resurrected Christ. And so he tells the story of um, these women going to the tomb early in the morning and finding that it was empty and coming back to the rest of the disciples and telling them, but the guys totally disregarded these women's testimony because a a woman's testimony at that time did not bear weight. They just kind of laughed them off unfortunately, but Peter took some note of it, wanted to verify it for himself, booked to the tomb, found that it was as the women had said because they were truth tellers. And they're all like marveling and wondering and not yet putting the pieces of the puzzle together, even though Jesus had said to them directly, explicitly, at least three times in each of the Gospels that he would suffer and that he would die at the hands of the Romans and the the Jews and that he would rise on the third day. They're all marveling. Two of these guys end up walking to a town seven miles away called Emmaus. And they're walking along the road. And at one point, Luke tells us in chapter 24 that these guys are just standing there looking sad. It's actually the first day of the week. It's Sunday. It's the day that these women and that Peter have found the tomb empty. And now they're traveling on to Emmaus. They're sad. They're talking about the things that have occurred over the, the last the, the weekend in Israel. They're grieving their friend, Jesus. And this guy who they did not recognize, who Luke tells us was Jesus himself, rolled up on them and said, hey, guys, what are you talking about? And they said to him, have you not heard all of the things that have happened in the last weekend? You must be the only one. He's like, no, tell me about it. Just opening up space them to share their grief, turning his ear to them. And so they tell him how this one uh, Jesus of Nazareth is a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people and our chief priests and our rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and they crucified him. And listen to this in Luke 24, 21, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all of this, so hopes are kind of dashed. They don't know what to make of it. Besides all this, though, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they didn't find his body, they came back saying they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him, Jesus, they did not see. And this stranger on this road... He kind of awkwardly like steps into some rebuke here. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. So he's urging them to go back to their scriptures, the Hebrew Bible. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things, the Messiah should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And so beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that's shorthand for the entire Old Testament, He, this stranger, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so he's just imagine being a part of that Bible study. 
Jesus himself is just opening up the entire Old Testament to just show you passage after passage after movement after movement of how this Messiah will come and will appear. And so they draw near to this village finally to which they were going, and he acted as if he was going to go further on, but they begged him to stay, and so he relented, and they ended up sharing a meal together. And at this meal, Jesus broke some bread and began to give it to them. They didn't recognize him until he began doing that. And he must have done it in such a distinct way that the Spirit of God, he himself, opened their minds to realize that this person was actually the resurrected Christ. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he was opening up the Scriptures to us? And then, mysteriously, he vanishes. He's the resurrected Christ. He can do what he wants, apparently. And he just rolls out of there in an instant and so they book it back to Jerusalem. And they find the other disciples in Jerusalem marveling that the tomb is empty and some of them have had encounters with angels and they're telling each other. And then these guys from Emmaus roll in and say, you guys, you're never going to guess what happened. And they're like, you're never going to guess what happened. And they're all sharing the same story of this, resur this God who is alive. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Well, apparently he's still on the map. Apparently, he is still in power, more so than even beforehand. And whoo, all of a sudden, Jesus appears and shows up to them again. And they all kind of like, they, they think that they don't, they don't have a, just like you and I, we would not have a category for it if somebody just appeared right next to me in this moment. All, can you imagine the gasps in this room if that were to occur? That is what occurred to them. And Jesus continued to take them forward in this Bible study. He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name, not just to the Jews, but to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem, beginning from the very place where He was murdered. You're witnesses of these things, Jesus said to them. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. There's this moment at the resurrection of Jesus that begins to change fearful and wondering and questioning disciples into sure-footed, secure, believing, empowered disciples. What we begin to learn as our New Testaments unfold in greater clarity is that the Bible is not about us. The hero of every story in the Bible is God Himself. And the Bible takes specific pleasure in telling the story of the Son of God, Jesus the Christ, where the Father is saying, exalt Him, believe on Him. The Spirit is saying, see Him, worship Him. The members of the Trinity are pointing at one another saying, exalt the Son, exalt the Father, exalt the Spirit. They're all about one another. Back to John 5, 39, where he's disputing with these Pharisees, and he says, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you're going to find eternal life, but you refuse to come to me and find eternal life. As Jesus is confronting them and saying that the, the, the Scriptures themselves don't give you eternal life, the Scriptures only lead you to the way, and Jesus himself is the way, what is the distinction that Jesus is making here? 
What's he saying that we do wrong when we're reading or listening to our Bibles? I'm asking you. What is Jesus saying that we do wrong when reading or listening to our Bibles? Not finding him. Okay, maybe we're looking for rules, we're looking for a way, we're looking for answers. It's not necessarily wrong. Not really believing it? Yeah. Yeah. Reading it as if it's alongside other literature in world history, not empowered and inspired by God himself. It can be a temptation even for us to see Bible engagement as the means of our deliverance rather than worshiping the author of the Scriptures and thanking Him for the gift of His wisdom within them and the abiding work that He continues to do in us and through us. Gospel is a word that we use a lot around here. It means good news. And anytime you use a word a lot, anytime you overuse a word, what happens? They kind of move into the junk drawer of all things. And so um, we want to uh, define the word gospel. We need to define what we mean by this. So whenever you hear me or Trevor or somebody else up front use the word gospel, this is what is behind it. The gospel is the objective good news of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. The gospel is the good news of how this perfect man, the man who is God, makes spiritually dead people alive and how he reconciles us to our Father and restores our souls and restores our bodies through his Spirit. He is the one who has secured eternal life with him forever. That's shorthand. But that's always what's in the background. The good news of Jesus is not about what we do for God. The good news of Jesus is is about just how much He has and continues to do for us. Christians actually stole the word gospel from the Romans. Did you know that? This is not, you you may not know that. This is not a Christian word. We co-opted it. We reassigned it. It was a term applied to any historical event of such significance that it changed the course of history for those to whom it was proclaimed. So, for instance, the birth of Caesar was good news to the people of Rome because it ushered in this new era of prosperity and this promise of the blessing of the Roman gods. But Christians took it and reassigned it, reappropriated it to the life and the death, the resurrection, ascension, and rule of Jesus Christ. This old uh, preacher, a man who's no longer with us, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, explains that when a king would go to war and when a king would lose this war, he would immediately send generals throughout the cities and throughout the villages Uh, to prepare common people for war. Why? Because the battle had been lost, the enemy would take advantage, the enemy would advance, and therefore the enemy would take people captive. And so if anyone wanted to live, they were going to need to fight for their own lives. Their livelihood, their hope, their future was essentially now in their own hands. But Lloyd-Jones says, on the other hand, when a king won a great victory on these front lines, he'd send messengers, not generals, to proclaim this news throughout the cities and villages of the empire 
So these men were not generals, but rather they were uh, telling the people to prepare for battle. Rather, they were messengers, a.k.a. they were truly, literally, evangelists. Evangelion is the Greek word for good news, for gospel. They were evangelists. They were people who were carrying the good news message of this gospel that the livelihood, the hope, the future of the people had been secured on their behalf by the king, though they themselves had not even lifted a finger. Every world religion sends generals, but Jesus sends messengers. There is nothing for you to earn. Peace and prosperity has been secured for the people of God by the King who is God. And so our work is to proclaim. Our work is to share. Our work is to believe. Our work is to declare. Have you thought about the solar system recently? You probably haven't. Nothing made sense about our planetary orbits until we figured out the solar system. And once Copernicus and Galileo began to, to figure out that the sun was actually at the center of the world, not the earth, everything began to make, make, everything began to make sense about how the planetary orbits worked. And it changed everything in the 17th century kings and rulers, education structures, the church, everyone was set up and positioned to believe that the earth was the center of all creation, of all things, of our universe, when in fact the sun was. And so Copernicus's discovery, it disrupted world culture. They wanted him excommunicated from the church. They wanted to take his life. It upset power structures like crazy. Now, if you and I were created by God in order to live with God, just think about that for a moment. If you, you didn't just happen here because mom and dad had an idea. You're here because of something much more profound than that. You originated in the mind of God. And He used human means to bring you to life and to existence. You were created by God to live for God. You and I, that is our purpose. Then, if that is true, it makes sense that He should occupy the center, doesn't it? That He should be at the center of who we are, our ambitions, our dreams, our hopes, our griefs, our pain. So if various circumstances are pretty good in our lives, but God isn't occupying the center of human life, no matter how noble it looks to us, is actually operating out of orbit, is it not? I've hinted at a few examples, but in your own experience or observation, Church, what kinds of things have tended to occupy the center of Christianity? I'm asking you again. What kinds of things have, ten have tended to occupy the center of Christianity, the center of church life? Ourselves? Somebody said ourselves? Rules. It's a big one. How many come from a background where, like, rules were a thing and you're still recovering from all that? There's space for you. What else? What tends to occupy the center? 
works, okay? Yeah, what you do, how well you do it, keeping up appearances, what else? Money, okay? Yeah, sense of wealth, affluence, build, 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 build. What else? Image, okay? Yep, how a person looks, conducts themselves, how teams look, how people look, the, yep, the kind of always smiling and always on. What else? What? Judgment? Maybe. Yeah. What else? Politics. Politics. He like gingerly puts his hand up. <laughs> it's true. It's true. What else? Programs. Okay. Yeah. Like programs, just the, like church is a community of people. We're just trying to stay together, keep it together, but we kind of miss the main point. Even Christianity as a religious system can obscure Jesus at times. The hero of the story, the hero of your life, the hero of the Bible delivers more than forgiveness. He delivers wholeness to even more reason to keep him at the center. Often when we think of the good news of Jesus, we think of forgiveness. It's true, like that's a part of it. He forgives our sins, our debts, our trespasses by his blood. Like Jesus died on the cross to save you from your sins. You know that like phrase or that sentence. Have you ever overdrawn your bank account? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> Maybe you should raise your hand. We'll get you some help. Help, help, help. Yeah. What happens when you overdraw your bank account? Penalties. You already don't have any cash, and now you have even less cash. And then what happens? Oh, like it hap- now imagine for a moment that this happens over and over and over and over again for you. You rack up this massive debt. You're under the, like you know what financial debt, financial weight feels like. It's heavy. It's heavier than other kinds of weight in life oftentimes. Imagine somebody just comes along and forgives this debt. You did not see them coming. You're resting and faltering under the weight of your own debt, but somebody comes along and forgives that debt. That is an incredible relief. Forgiveness means that someone forgives your debt, but what do you still have to do? Not do it all over again. Unless your system changes, you find yourself in the same scenario that you were in, right? If you're using a broken system, we're going to find ourselves right back where we started. Now, in the gospel, God gives us forgiveness. He he brings us up to zero, but it gets better than that. He also credits our account, which means that he begins to work transformation in our lives. He begins to undo the broken systems. He begins to, he means to make it all, make your life, your way unrecognizable from who you were. This is where the Apostle Paul calls it, um, we are new creations. Behold, the old is gone and the new has come. If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. So God in the gospel goes way further than forgiveness only. He credits our account with Jesus' own riches. There's an acronym, this word grace, maybe you've heard it. Um, The acronym for grace goes, God's riches at Christ's expense. We're recipients of God's riches at Christ's expense. 
When he credits our account with Jesus' riches, this means that our sin is not only forgiven, but Jesus' righteousness is applied by God to every person who entrusts themselves in faith to Jesus Christ. Timothy Keller, he says that the, the, the gospel continues to illustrate for us that we are more sinful than we can imagine. Like, if you're growing in your understanding of God's holiness, you're also growing in your understanding of your own sinfulness. Like, the gap widens in some profound ways and some troubling ways. And so the gospel continues to unfold for us just the, 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 the sin and the, the selfishness and the dysfunction and the unbelief actually goes way deeper than we thought it did on day one of following him. And the gospel continues to illustrate for us that we are far more, more loved than we could ever hope or dare imagine. So even in all of that depth, he continues to pursue. The psalmist would write, if I go down here, you're there. If I'm up here, you're there. Everywhere you are in pursuit of me. I struggle to believe this on a regular basis, and I operate out of my flesh. And it's these moments of, like, of incremental rescue. Just this last weekend and the, and the week prior, like, just all, like, twisted up inside about various things and, and like, kind of pushing the, God, pushing the presence of Jesus off, and I just want to deal with it myself. And then when the good news of Jesus begins to come home to me, and I'm like, man, you got to just stop and relent and quiet your mind for just a moment and pay attention to the work that he's already done on your behalf and the way that he is currently present to you. Now, if you will just stop and recognize him for a moment, your whole interior posture, my whole interior posture will shift. And sure enough, when I begin to create some of that space and push away, I recognize that he's with me and he's not abandoned me and he's continuing to give me wisdom and to lead me forward. I get to spend a moment like uh, rehearsing that I have the righteousness of Christ. And not only that, but he's giving me through his spirit the mind of Christ too. And so he's leading me forward with wisdom in a new direction. Have you talked to this person? Have you talked to that person? What about this text in the scriptures? Like, he continues to just unlock in his ways a way forward for me. Um, some of the older people in the room, do you remember Scrooge McDuck? Does anybody remember Scrooge McDuck? Well, I'm 43, and he was on when I was in elementary school, so yes, we're getting a little bit older. Scrooge McDuck, do you remember how he'd get all spun out? He'd get all stressed out. What would he do? He'd go and swim in all of his money. That's exactly what he would do right there. And you would just, there would be these scenes all the time where he would just be frolicking in all of his riches. That's how he would comfort himself. That's the invitation that you and I have in the gospel. All that the Father has offered to every single one of us. Imagine comforting yourself in the riches of his kingdom. The riches of his acceptance, not based on how you screwed it up this week or his unacceptance. Like, if you cannot earn your way into acceptance, you can't earn your way out of acceptance either. Yes? Imagine rehearsing his call and his granted power for you to change. It feels like we're stuck. 
but we're not alone. Look around the room. You're not alone. Imagine if we're rehearsing the riches of His grand debt-forgiving love for you, but He doesn't just bring you up to zero. He also credits your account and calls you holy. And you don't feel it, and you don't really see it on a daily basis, but as you look back over five years, you go, oh, okay, maybe I have grown. It's been slower than I wanted, but I'm still here. He's still with me. I'm still growing. I've had my ups and downs. If you believe this in your core, what would be showing up in your life, church? Peace. Okay? Joy? Doesn't, like the circumstances don't necessarily shift or change from day to day, but a demeanor begins to show up and kind of uh, ooze out heard peace, I've heard joy. Truly, in your life, like, what's your word for this? If you believe this, into your core, what would show up? Rest, joyfulness, resilience, freedom, contentment. What else? Lack of fear. Let's talk, church. What else? Trust, freedom, Patience, praise, grace for others, grace for others, praise for others too. Probably just like not be so worried about getting mine that I be, I'm able to give it away and say what you did there was incredible. Thank you. Like I really appreciate that. I saw how you interacted with your kid and I just learned something from you. Honor, like just giving it away. Anything else? Humility. confidence. We could go on. These aren't Christian things. Take a moment and think about the words that you've just heard around the room. These aren't uniquely Christian things. They're the deepest of human longings. That's what we're tapping on. When we believe the gospel, when we rest on Jesus as our only hope in life and death, these, we, we're not controlling the growth. They just kind of sprout. It's like whack-a-mole. They just keep like, they just begin to come. They're the deepest of human longings. God, the Son, has literally left heaven and defeated hell to bring you and I in. Now, do the things that we have just named describe you? Do not let guilt and condemnation wave over you right now. Resist it. Push it back. Do some of the things that we have just described, named, do they describe you? I think they do. Like, we're humans, right? So we're always mixed bags. But as your pastor, as somebody who gets to stand here and, and look at you this morning, I get to see and I get to say, like, I have screwed it up for some of you, and you have hung with me and pursued. When I was being a child, you have pursued. Thank you. I see you pursuing each other. I see you hanging in there for one another. I see you continually showing up and serving. 
There's a host of people in this room who are growing in confidence, who are growing in freedom, who are growing in discernment, who are growing in joy, who are growing in your ability to articulate the gospel, who are growing in your ability to walk in the light and to reveal what is true, though it is hard. There are a number of you in this room, I know your names, that are pushing back hard on addiction. You have purposed that the paths that you are walking in, in the path, in faithfulness to Jesus Christ, you will no longer continue to let those have sway and control and ownership over you, and so you're moving toward Christ. It's incremental. It's slow for sure. It doesn't look all that sexy or royal, but you are on the path, and I am incredibly grateful for you. And... We've got some room to grow as a church family and as individuals. So let's be honest about those things and say, we're going to make it. Jesus is still with us. If he didn't give up on me back then, he is surely not going to walk out on me now. He is with me. Just like there are unevangelized people groups, there are unevangelized territories of our own hearts too that the gospel still has yet to do business with. And because Jesus is good, he will continue to come. So, you guys, when the go and do comes in front of or without the he went and did, we fall apart. We have to keep him central. And we need not only to proclaim this good news to ourselves, but to begin rehearsing it for one another. And so, like the Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That is our aim. We learn to gospel our own hearts, and then we lean into gospeling one another's hearts, bringing the good news to bear. A guy named Frederick Buckner says this, a crucial, a crucial eccentricity of the Christian faith is the assertion that people are saved by grace. That's a crucial eccentricity. Am I saying that word right? I don't know if I am. Whatever. You know it. A crucial aspect of the Christian life is that people are saved by grace. He goes on to say, there's nothing you have to do. There's nothing you have to do. There's nothing you have to do. To entrust yourself to Jesus is not a work. It's simply a, uh, to receive what he means to give you. God himself is both king and messenger who comes declaring that peace and prosperity have been secured. So all that is left for us to do is receive the news, believe the news, remember the news, and celebrate and share the news. The gospel, here's where we'll land, is news about what Jesus has done for our acceptance, but religion that is earning our way up to God gives instructions about what we, what we must do to be accepted by him. I'm going to I'm going to contrast religion and the gospel here. The gospel elicits joy and gratitude, but religion elicits fear and stress. The gospel sends messengers who spread the good news that our lives are now safe because of King Jesus' victory, but, religious, but religion sends commanders who tell people they must fight for themselves if they want to save their lives. The epicenter for this church community all of life is the gospel. It's the nuclear life, the nuclear power of our life together. It's the engine room of our life together, to use another metaphor. The gospel gets us out of bed in the morning, 
It helps keep us alive when we despair. It moves us to forgive and to serve our enemies. It teaches us to open our homes and our lives in radical ways to strangers. The gospel abides with us daily, teaching us to look to God because he accepts us gladly and welcomes us into his family. Whenever the gospel comes home to a person, whether for the first time or for the 600th time, it has a result, and the result is joy and generosity. That's just immediately what, comes, what starts to spill out of a person's life when the gospel comes home to us. It's joy and generosity, and that's where we're headed next week. We are gospel people, good news people, which creates joy and generosity. At the end of Luke 24, as Jesus has been appearing to these strangers on the road to this town called Emmaus and appearing to all of the disciples, then it says at the very end, then he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. Remember, this is the resurrected Christ. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Listen to this. And they worshiped him and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple blessing God. Happy birthday, church. Let's sing this morning. Go ahead and come on up. Let's celebrate this morning. We're going to just create some space after this song for, for you to linger. We've got some uh, shirts and hats and stickers and stuff outside for you. We've got some donuts that we'll bring out and... and uh, there will be some more coffee. Just feel free to, to hang out. I know the rain has kind of put a bit of a damper. It's rained on our parade a bit this morning. That's all good. Like, let's hang out. Let's get to know one another, and let's spend quality time with one another this morning. I want to pray, and then let's rally. Father, thank you for your gospel. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your spirit who dwells within us and helps us to believe. Even when we, uh, it seems like unbelief is just all that's there, those moments are so real for your people. Thank you for not leaving us there. Thank you for six years of togetherness. We recognize that there are a lot of faces in this room. We recognize that there are a lot of faces who used to be in this room. There are people who have moved away. There are people who have moved into other communities, church communities. and We love them and we grieve their loss and we thank you for them. We ask that you'd speak to them. We ask that you'd guide them, that you would help them, that you would serve them, and that you would do the same for us as we continue to circle up here in this building and in communities throughout our region. You'd continue to empower us. We thank you for loving us, bearing with us, giving yourself to us continually. Lead us, King Jesus, in your name. Amen. Would you sing?